This is Gynecologic Healthcare, Chapter 13, Contraception, uh, Hormonal Methods, which is page 243 in the book. The FDA's approval of combined oral contraceptives in 1960 marked a revolutionary change in reproductive rights and responsibilities for women. For the first time, women had access to nearly 100% effective forms of contraception that did not require the participation of the male partner and was independent of the act of coitus. Contraceptive pills are some of the best studied and most widely used medications available today. They remain the most popular form of reversible contraception in the United States. Two types of hormonal contraceptives are available. Those that contain progestin, progestin, progestin only, and those that contain progestin and estrogen, or combined. Progestin, the synthetic version of the endogenous hormone progesterone, is highly effective alone as a contraceptive, but it may cause irregular bleeding. The addition of estrogen to progestin in combined methods results in more predictable bleeding patterns due to stabilization of the endometrium. Estrogen is a single agent for contraception, requires doses that may cause unacceptable risks of serious side effects, such as thromboembolic events and endometrial hyperplasia. The synergistic activity of estrogen and progestin makes it possible to combine these hormones in lower doses to produce successful contraception that would be possible using, that then would be possible using either hormone alone. Combined contraceptive methods currently available in the United States include um, contraceptive pills, the patch, and the vaginal ring. Progestin methods include progestin-only pills or injection, subdermal implants, and the levonorgestrel IUDs. The implant and IUDs have already been discussed in the section on LARC. Both progestin and estrogen inhibit the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and subsequent steroidogenesis. Progestins have several contraceptive effects, including preventing the luteinizing hormone LH surge and thereby inhibiting ovulation, thickening the cervical mucus, which inhibits sperm penetration and transport, changing the mobility, I'm sorry, changing the motility of the fallopian tubes so the transport of sperm or ova is impaired, and causing the endometrium to become atrophic, although it is unknown whether these changes are sufficient to prevent implantation in the rare event that fertilization occurs. Estrogen suppresses the production of follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, thereby preventing the selection and emergence of a dominant follicle. The primary mechanism of action of all hormonal contraceptive methods, with the exception of progestin-only pills and levonorgestrel IUDs, is preventing ovulation. Other contraceptive effects of progestin represent secondary mechanisms to prevent pregnancy if ovulation occurs. Many women who use contraception have fears about how long it will take to return to fertility after discontinuing their method. A systematic review demonstrated that within a year of discontinuing a contraceptive that inhibits ovulation, 80% of women attempting to conceive will become pregnant. Progesterone-only pills and levonorgestrel IUDs do not consistently inhibit ovulation. Therefore, return to fertility is expected upon cessation of either method. The primary mechanism of action for both methods 
is thickening the cervical mucus. Levonorgestrel IUDs also inhibit sperm from fertilizing an ovum. In the past, a barrier to contraception use has been the requirement for a pelvic examination prior to initiation of hormonal methods. This is not necessary and pelvic examination should not be a requirement for women seeking contraception with the exception of IUDs. Researchers have demonstrated that provision of oral contraceptives without a mandatory pelvic examination does not place women at higher risk of cervical cancer. None of the hormonal methods provide STI protection. For this reason, it is important to stress the concomitant use of barrier methods in women who are at risk for exposure to STIs. Many popular myths exist regarding the health risks of hormonal methods, and the healthcare provider must be proactive in educating patients about the non-contraceptive benefits of these methods. Future fertility may be preserved through the decreased risk of PID and ectopic pregnancy associated with the use of hormonal methods. Other benefits of hormonal methods include a decreased risk of several cancers, colon, ovarian, and endometrial, and a decreased risk of the serious diseases endometriosis, adenomyosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and asthma. Protection against ovarian and uterine cancer may persist as long as 28 years after discontinuation of these methods. The preservation of bone density that occurs in women who have ever used combined oral contraceptives may persist up to age 80. Levonorgestrel IUDs are connected with an approximate one-third reduction in invasive cervical cancer. The use of combined oral con contraceptives is not associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, and this lack of association is also seen in carriers of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. An increased risk of cervical cancer is seen in long-term combined oral contraceptive users, though this risk returns to normal after cessation of use. Although an increased risk of a rare type of liver tumor is, is connected with combined oral contraceptive use, the decreased risk of other more common cancers may lead to an overall decrease in cancer-related mortality. During the first few postpartum weeks, the risk of venous thromboembolism, VTEs, deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary emboli is greatly elevated in all women. Consequently, estrogen-containing contraceptives are contraindicated during this time. Progestin-only methods, including IUDs and implants, may be initiated immediately postpartum. Combined hormonal methods. Early formulations of combined oral contraceptives contained unnecessarily high doses of hormones, 80 to 100 micrograms of either ethanol, estradiol, or mestranol, and 1 to 5 milligrams of progestins. Since the 1970s, the trend has been toward lower-dose formulations that are equally effective, safer, and have a better side effect profile. In addition to improving formulations, alternative delivery systems for combined contraception have been developed that allow women to avoid a daily dosing schedule. These alternative delivery systems include the combined contraceptive patch and the vaginal ring. This section begins by providing information about con combined oral contraceptives, which is then followed by a discussion of the patch and the vaginal ring. Moving on to combined oral contraceptives. Since the milestone introduction of combined oral contraceptives in the United States in 1960, many formulations have been developed. Each is unique, while its 
patent protection remains in force. After the patent expires, however, generic formulations tend to outnumber the brand name products. So the name formulation may have several names. I'm sorry, for, so the same formulation may have several names. Combined oral contraceptives are classified as monophasic or multiphasic. And in the multiphasic department, you can have biphasic, triphasic, or quadriphasic, depending on whether the dosage of hormones is constant or varies. There is no evidence that either monophasic or multiphasic formulations are a superior choice. Most of the COCs available today contain 10 to 35 micrograms of ethanol estradiol, although a few COCs contain 50 micrograms of ethanol estradiol or mestranol, the methyl ether of ethanol estradiol. Approximately 30% of mestranol is lost when it's converted to ethanol estradiol, thus a 50 microgram mestranol pill is bioequivalent to a 35 microgram ethanol estradiol pill. Estradiol valerate is found in the new quadrophasic COC. COCs also contain one of several different progestins. The progestins are often referred to as belonging to the first, second, or third generation. With the exception of drosperinone, all progestins and COCs available in the United States are de derived from C19 androgens. These derivatives are classified into two categories. One, the estrains or chemical derivatives of norethendrone, which would be norethendrone, norethendrone acetate, or ethanodiol diacetate. And number two, the gonanes, or chemical derivatives of norgesterol, which would be norgesterol, its active isomer LNG, desogesterol, and norgestimate. Members of these categories differ in terms of both their bioavailability and their half-life. Caution should be exercised when comparing the potency or purported androgenicity of the various types of progesterones by category. Rather, formulations should be judged on the clinical response of the woman. Drosperinone, the only non-testosterone-derived progestin, is an analog of the diuretic spironolactone. Drosperinone has a mild potassium-sparing diuretic effect, necessitating that potassium levels be checked during the first cycle in women using angiotensin-converting enzyme or ACE inhibitors, chronic daily NSAIDs, angiotensin-2 receptor antagonists, potassium-sparing diuretics, heparin or aldosterone antagonists. Women with conditions that predispose them to hyperkalemia should not use COCs containing drosperinone. The initial choice of a particular COC should be made with the goal of providing the woman with a safe, effective contraception. All low-dose, in parentheses, less than 50 microgram, COCs meet this requirement, so it's reasonable to provide a woman with whatever formulation is most cost-effective and whatever pill she requests by name. Instructions contained in the pill package insert include options for a Sunday start, a first day start, and a day five start. All of these options are based on the principle that as long as COCs are begun within the first five days of menses, there is contraceptive protection in the first cycle. The Sunday start has been the traditional approach in the United States because COC packages often reflect that regimen and the withdrawal bleed does not usually occur on the weekend. 
which women may find preferable. The advantage of a first day start is that no backup contraceptive method is required during the first cycle. Women are advised to use additional contraception such as condoms with regimens having other starting points for the first five days. An increasingly popular alternative approach is to utilize a quick start by beginning the pill anytime in the menstrual cycle if pregnancy is excluded and with additional contraception for the first seven days. Instructions are given to take a pregnancy test in two to three weeks if unprotected sex occurred during the cycle. This practice has been shown to increase continuation rates for COCs and is not associated with an increased incidence of adverse bleeding patterns. With the traditional cyclic schedule, women take 21 to 24 days of active COCs followed by four to seven days of inactive pills or no pills. During the hormone-free interval, bleeding from the withdrawal of estrogen and progesterone occurs. This is technically a withdrawal bleed rather than menses and is based primarily on convention rather than science. Extended or emitting the hormone-free interval for two or more cycles and continuous emitting the hormone-free interval indefinitely, COC regimens are popular both for medical indications and convenience. Monophasic pills are generally preferred for this use. Efficacy and effectiveness. COCs require the woman's daily adherence to the dosing set schedule, which can be compromised by many factors, resulting in a gap between efficacy and effectiveness. Based on US data related to pill use, it appears that approximately 9% of women will become pregnant unintentionally due to incorrect pill use. Common reasons for COC failure include not starting a new pack on time, missing pills, taking a break from the pill, and discontinuing the pill in response to normal side effects. The counseling and education provided by the clinician are critical to the ultimate success of the woman in avoiding unwanted pregnancy. The most important pills to take in each cycle are the first and last active COCs, which ensure that the hormone-free interval does not exceed seven days. During the hormone-free interval, pituitary stimulation of the ovaries by FSH is likely to resume and follicular development may begin in many women. Immature follicles stimulated during the hormone-free phase generally regress after the hormone pills are resumed and seven consecutive days of pill use have been shown to be sufficient in suppressing any follicular function. Hormone-free intervals of less than seven days have become increasingly standard. Patient instructions must stress the importance of starting a new pack on time and not taking more than seven days off from the active pills. If a woman does extend the hormone-free interval beyond seven days, she should be instructed to abstain from intercourse or use additional contraception until seven consecutive pills have been taken. Missing a pill dose is almost universal among women who choose COCs for contraception. Missing a random pill now and then is unlikely to lead to a method failure, but unfortunately this may lead to complacency regarding the importance of daily adherence to the schedule because women come to believe that inconsistent pill use is adequate. The probability of pill failure increases with repeated missed pills. This issue is complicated by the fact that instructions for women who miss a pill can be confusing. Current recommendations for later missed pills can be found in figure 13.5. So let's go to figure 13.5. Here's the recommended actions after late or missed COCs. 
if one hormonal pill is late, less than, but it's been less than 24 hours since a pill should have been taken, um, or if one hormonal pill has been missed and there's 24 to 48 hours since a pill should have been taken, take the late or missed pill as soon as possible. Continue taking the remaining pills at the usual time. No additional contraceptive protection is needed. An emergency contraception is not usually needed, but can be considered if hormonal pills were missed earlier in the cycle or in the last week of the previous cycle. Now, if two or more consecutive hormonal pills have been missed and it's been greater than 48 hours since the pill should have been taken, you want to take the most recent missed pill as soon as possible, continue taking the remaining pills at the usual time, and use a backup contraception, for example, condoms, or avoid sexual intercourse until the hormonal pills have been taken for seven consecutive days. If pills were missed in the last week of hormonal pills, omit the hormone-free interval by finishing the hormonal pills in the current pack and starting a new pack the next day. If unable to start a new pack immediately, use backup contraception or avoid sexual intercourse until hormonal pills from a new pack have been taken for seven consecutive days. Emergency contraception should be considered if hormonal pills were missed during the first week and unprotected sexual intercourse occurred in the previous five days. Emergency contraception may also be considered at other times as appropriate. All right. Many women incorrectly believe that temporarily discontinuing or taking a break from COCs is beneficial. It's important to convey to women that hormones found in the pill do not accumulate in the body, and the occurrence of a withdrawal bleed indicates that the endometrium is responding to the absence of hormones. There are no differences in the long-term fertility of women who use the pill intermittently and those who use the pill for many years. Nearly half of all women who begin taking oral contraceptive discontinue their use before the end of a year. The most commonly reported reasons for discontinuing are side effects and difficulty obtaining contraception. A misunderstanding about the management of side effects may compound this dissatisfaction. Clear information about the side effects commonly encountered during the first three cycles of pill use should be given. Whenever a woman begins a new COC, she should be advised to contact the clinician prior to discontinuing the pills if she experiences unwanted side effects. In such a case, a different pill may be substituted without interrupting effective contraception. A number of medications can modify the effectiveness of COCs. Pharmacologic mechanisms that alter medication metabolism include induction of liver enzymes, alterations in sex hormone binding globulin, and medications that alter the first pass effect in the gut. Medications that reduce the effectiveness of COCs include antiretroviral therapy, rifampin, grisofulvin, some anticonvulsants, uh, and some over-the-counter herbal supplements such as St. John's wort. Despite popular cultural myths, antibiotics do not decrease the effectiveness of COCs with the exception of rifampin. Women taking rifampin should use an alternative form of contraception in addition to COCs. Safety and side effects. COCs are among the most extensively studied medications available 
and are known to be extremely safe for healthy women. Many of the side effects associated with COCs are bothersome but not dangerous. However, serious complications are possible and the basis for contraindications to COC use. These contraindications may be related to the direct effects of the hormonal ingredient, as in breast cancer, or they may result from hormonal effects on other systems, such as a thromboembolism. The U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use 2016 provides an evidence-based guide to the contraindications to COC use. One must always weigh the risks of pregnancy in relation to the risks associated with contraceptive use. All COCs increase the risk of VTE. The level of this risk appears to be related to the dose of estrogen and is greatest for women with known clotting disorders, such as factor V Leiden or a family history of thrombosis. The various progesterone complaining, containing, the various progestin components may contribute to the risk of VTE to a differing degree. However, the difference among pills is small and the studies showing their relative risks have been subject to methodological errors. A large multinational study reported the incidence of VTE to be similar among users of drosperinone-containing LNG containing and other progestin-containing COCs. COCs containing less than 50 micrograms of estrogen do not appear to increase the risk of arterial thrombosis, in other words, myocardial infarction or stroke, in healthy, non-smoking women, including women older than 40 years. COCs may increase blood pressure in some women, although an increase in plasma through an increase in plasma angiotensin. Because hypertension is a cofactor in the development of cardiovascular disease, blood pressure should be monitored in COC users. Metabolic effects of COCs may include development of benign hepatocellular adenomas, although this side effect is very rare with low-dose pills. There does not appear to be an association between these benign tumors and the development of liver cancer. Low-dose COCs appear to create negligible changes in insulin levels or glucose levels and have no effect on the development of diabetes. Most comparisons of combination contraceptives have shown no significant difference in weight gain in pill users versus non-users in large studies. However, more studies are needed to determine the effect of combination contraception on weight gain. History of COC use regardless of duration, does not affect breast cancer use. Women who are currently taking COCs have a slightly increased risk of developing breast cancer. However, this risk is small and may represent a de detection bias because pill users are more likely to receive regular screening. Some studies have noted an increase in the incidence of cervical cancer in COC users. It's difficult to determine whether this finding reflects a true increase or results from the fact that women who use COCs have more sexual partners, human papillomavirus infections, and pap tests, the latter of which causes detection bias. Sexual dysfunction and changes in libido have been noted among COC users and may respond to changing to an IUD, etonogestural implant, contraceptive ring, or permanent sterilization. Before changing contraceptive methods due to sexual concerns, the clinician should do a thorough evaluation of other contributing factors, including pelvic floor dysfunction, relationship issues, and whether the use of vaginal lubricants and moisturizers would increase sexual function. 
Chapter 12 discusses the assessment of sexual health, and Chapter 18 addresses evaluation and management of alterations in sexual function. Depression, although rare, may justify the use of alternative methods of contraception. Other side effects specific to estrogen include nausea, cervical ectopy, and leucorrhea, telangiectasis, cloasma, which is darkening of sun-exposed skin, growth of breast tissue, uh, increased cholesterol content within the bile, which can lead to gallstones, benign hepatocellular adenomas, and changes in the clotting cascade. Effects specific to the androgenic impact of progestins include increased appetite and subsequent weight gain, mood changes, and depression. Grimes and Schultz suggest that counseling women about potential side effects such as headaches, nausea, breast pain, and mood changes may be unethical. The prevalence of these nonspecific symptoms is high in the general population of reproductive age women, and several trials show no difference in these side effects when an oral hormonal contraceptive is compared to placebo. If women are told to expect troublesome side effects, these symptoms may occur simply because of the power of suggestion. Given that high quality evidence indicates that the frequency of nonspecific side effects is no greater with COCs than with inert pills, Optimistic counseling should be the norm. Non-contraceptive benefits. The non-contraceptive benefits of COCs are numerous and often underappreciated. Some of the evidence indicates that the relative risk of ovarian cancer is decreased by 20% for each five years of COC use. This reduction in risk persists more than 30 years after pills are discontinued, although the extent of risk reduction diminishes somewhat with time. Likewise, COC use reduces the risk of endometrial cancer by approximately 50%. This risk lessens with increasing duration of use and persists for as long as 20 years after COCs are discontinued. Women on COCs also experience lower rates of PID requiring hospitalization, fewer ectopic pregnancies, and lower incidence of endometriosis. These conditions are the most common causes of infertility. Thus, the pill helps preserve fertility not by conservation of ovulation, but rather through prevention of subfertility causes. Other well-documented non-contraceptive benefits of the pill include menstrual-related effects, discussed in the next paragraph, improvement in acne and hirsutism, and reduced incidence of benign breast conditions. Older studies demonstrated a reduced risk of developing functional ovarian cysts while women were on COCs, but this effect is less profound with the lower doses of hormones in currently used COCs. In addition to being effective contraceptive methods, COCs have many other therapeutic uses. For example, they regulate menstrual cycles and are useful in the management of abnormal bleeding patterns. While, COCs, while taking COCs, women experience lighter periods that may treat or improve anemia. COCs can also be an effective treatment for middle spurts, dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, premenstrual syndromes, and the vasomotor symptoms with perimenopause. Women who experience catamenial conditions or those that rise and fall in synchronicity with a menstrual cycle, such as menstrual migraines, may also find that COCs improve those conditions. Decreasing the number of withdrawal bleeding episodes per year may further diminish these problems. Advantages and disadvantages. COC use is unrelated to coitus. Most women in the United States are familiar with the instructions for COC use, and this method is widely available in pharmacies and clinics. 
Confidence in the product is high because it has been on the market for more than 50 years and has been continually researched. Additionally, more than 30 different formulations of COCs are available, allowing for individualization based on response to these products. While it may be biologically plausible, there is not sufficient or consistent evidence demonstrating negative effects of hormonal contraception on breastfeeding. The risk of VTE is increased in the immediate postpartum period, and as such, the U.S. medical eligibility for criteria for contraceptive use classifies COC use in breastfeeding women who have no other risk factors for VTE in Category 4, up to 21 days postpartum, in Category 3 for 21 to 29 days postpartum, and in Category 2 from 30 days postpartum on. The obvious disadvantage of COCs is the need for daily pill taking. Patients can be encouraged to use apps or calendars that remind them to take their pills daily to reduce the incidence of late or missed pills. Some apps, such as Spot On from Planned Parenthood, provide reminders for all types of contraception, in addition to evidence-based instructions on what to do in case of late or missed pills. Clinicians should connect patients to resources that increase adherence to their medication regimen. The ongoing cost of COCs can be problematic. Although under the ACA, all private insurance companies and states with Medicaid expansion must cover at least one form of COCs. Particularly for young women, lack of privacy may also be an issue. Finally, some women experience side effects with COCs that they are unable to tolerate. Combined contraceptive patch and vaginal ring. The contraceptive patch, Zulane, and vaginal ring, Nuva ring, share many similarities with COCs, yet they have some distinct differences. The patch and ring utilize delivery systems that allow for simpler dosing than daily pill taking. Both methods avoid the first pass metabolism of COCs, allowing for lower dose administration and potentially avoiding interactions with other medications. The patch releases 20 micrograms per day of ethanol estradiol and 150 micrograms per day of progesterone norlogestamine, the active metabolite of norgestimate. These active ingredients are rapidly absorbed and reach therapeutic serum concentrations within 24 to 48 hours. The thin beige patch, which is one and a half inches square, is applied by the woman and worn for one week at a time. The patch is changed weekly on the same day of the week for three weeks, then no patch is worn for one week to allow for a withdrawal bleed. As with COCs, no more than seven days should pass between removal of the last patch and the beginning of the next patch cycle. The patch can be worn on the buttocks, upper arm, abdomen, and anywhere on the upper torso except the breasts. The vaginal ring is colorless and flexible with an outer diameter of about two inches. It releases 15 micrograms per day of ethanol estradiol and 120 milligrams per day of the progesterone etonorgestrel, the active metabolite of desogestrel. The active ingredients of the ring rapidly diffuse across the mucous membranes of the vagina and reach a steady state in the serum. The ring is left in place in the vagina for 21 days and then removed for one week, allowing for a withdrawal bleed. The ring provides a steady delivery of hormones, which leads to a very low serum concentration, approximately half of the serum concentration found with the 35 microgram COC. Efficacy and effectiveness. The patch and the vaginal ring have the same theoretical efficacy and typical use failure rates as COCs. There is less opportunity for a user error with the patch and ring because they do not need to be remembered daily. Each patch can 
continues to emit hormones at therapeutic levels for at least nine days after the second patch is applied. The hormones emitted by the ring remain at therapeutic levels after three weeks. Therefore, it is, there is some margin of error if women forget to change the products on time. As with COC's extended use, emitting the patch or ring-free week for two or more cycles and continuous use, emitting the patch or ring-free week indefinitely of the patch and ring is common. The patch is effective only if it is completely attached to the skin. Even partial detachment necessitates replacement. The exact placement of the ring in the vagina is not critical to its efficacy. Although early studies suggested increased failure rates of the patch in women who weigh more than 198 pounds, more recent research does not support this finding. Safety and side effects. The U.S. medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use currently specifies the same criteria for COCs, the patch and the ring, except in women who've undergone malabsorptive bariatric surgery procedures. It is theoretically possible that the non-oral delivery systems may result in different safety and side effect profiles, but to date, no evidence has been published to support this hypothesis. Clinicians are cautioned not to presume that the patch and ring are safer than, the C than COCs. A woman is, who is not a candidate for COC should not be given the patch or ring either. The patch has been associated with heightened concern about our increased risk of VTE. Studies have produced conflicting results on this topic. While hormone levels with the patch are typically higher than those with COCs, the clinical implications of these pharmacokinetic findings are unclear and do not necessarily indicate any increased risk of serious side effects. An FDA advisory committee concluded that the benefits of the patch, for example, in pregnancy prevention, outweigh the risk of VTE. In general, the side effects of the patch in the vaginal ring are very similar to those of COCs, such as breakthrough bleeding and nausea. In addition, the patch and ring have some unique side effects related to the, their delivery systems. In studies of the patch, approximately 20% of participating women experience some irritation at the site of application, but fewer than 3% discontinued for this reason. The ring may be felt during intercourse, although this is not commonly cited as a reason for discontinuation. Although there is no increase in cervical cytological, cytological changes with the vaginal ring, an increased incidence of vaginitis and leukorrhea has been noted. Non-contraceptive benefits. It is theoretically plausible that the non-contraceptive benefits of COCs may be realized with the patch and ring as well because these methods affect the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis in the same way as COCs. However, epidemiologic studies to support this theory are lacking. Caution must, must be exercised in attributing the same long-term benefits of COCs to the patch and ring in the absence of published evidence of this effect. Advantages and disadvantages. The intrinsic advantage of the patch and ring is the avoidance of daily dosing, which may lead to greater effectiveness. A specific advantage of the vaginal ring is the lack of visible evidence of its use, which may appeal to some women, particularly adolescents, who want to keep their contraceptive use private. The patch may appeal to women who are not comfortable with vaginal placement, but desire a non-daily method of contraception. One disadvantage of the patch and ring is that the only one that there is only one formulation of each method currently available. The development of a variety of products may allow for individual variations in response to hormones, and patch-colored choices may appeal to some women as well. These methods are also associated with ongoing costs. 
A final disadvantage of the patch and ring is that both methods still contain large amounts of active ingredients upon disposal. The presence of these chemicals have prompted environmental concerns about the effect of high doses of estrogen and progestin seeping into the water supply. In the future, a recommendation may be issued to place the used devices into a biohazard waste container instead of landfills. Moving on, progesterone-only methods. Progestin-only methods are used continuously. There is no hormone-free interval as occurs with combined methods. These contraceptive methods have minimal effects on coagulation factors, blood pressure, or lipid levels and are generally considered safer for women who have contraindications to estrogens such as cardiovascular risk factors, migraine with aura, or history of VTE. In spite of this belief, the product labeling for some progesterone-only products mimics the labeling for products containing estrogen. The evidence-based U.S. medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use should be used instead of product labels to identify appropriate candidates for progesterone-only contraception. Progesterone-only contraceptives do not provide the same cycle control as methods containing estrogen, and unscheduled bleeding is common with all progesterone-only methods. Typically, unscheduled bleeding occurs most frequently during the first six months of use, with a substantial number of users becoming amenorrheic by 12 months of use. Overall blood loss decreases over time, making progesterone-only methods protective against iron deficiency anemia. With appropriate counseling, many women see amenorrhea as a benefit of these methods. All progesterone-only methods are likely to improve menstrual symptoms, including dysmenorrhea, menorrhagia, premenstrual syndrome, and anemia. The thickening of cervical mucus seen with progesterone methods is protective against PID. Progesterone-only contraceptives include progesterone-only pills, injections, implants, and levonorgestrel IUDs. Progesterone-only pills. POPs, or mini-pills, that are available in the United States contain 0.35 milligrams of norethindrone. Each pill contains active ingredients. There is no hormone-free interval, as occurs with COCs. POPs must be taken not only daily, but also at the same time each day. Efficacy and effectiveness. Sparse data exists on the efficacy of POPs, but their efficacy is thought to be lower than that of COCs. POPs do not suppress ovulation as reliably as COCs, but rather rely primarily on the contraceptive effect of thickened cervical mucus. The onset of cervical mucus thickening occurs two to four hours after a POP is taken and persists for 22 hours after each dose. For this reason, if intercourse generally occurs in the morning or evening, the POP should be taken at midday. In a woman who ovulates while taking a POP, taking the pill as little as three hours late may allow the cervical mucus to return to its fertile state and render the contraceptive effect temporarily void. When POPs are used in combination with lactation, the effectiveness of the two methods is nearly 100%. Safety and side effects. POPs have the fewest contraindications of all hormonal methods. In one survey, only 1.6% of women had contraindications. Contraindications to POP use can be found in the U.S. medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive use. Unscheduled bleeding and spotting are the side effects most commonly associated with POPs. Decreased effectiveness of POPs is possible when these agents are used in combination with rifampin or rifibutin. Non-contraceptive benefits. Non-contraceptive benefits are described in the introduction to the progesterone-only methods section. 
The reductions in ovarian and endometrial cancer rates seen with COCs have not been reported with POPs. Advantages and disadvantages. Each package of POPs contain one type of pill versus two or more types in a package of COCs, so there may be less confusion about which pill is to be taken. POPs are a safe method for many women who can't take estrogen for medical reasons. Similarly, women who are sensitive to even low estrogen pills, as manifested by nausea, breast tenderness, or hypertension, but who still want an oral contraceptive may do well on POPs. All contraceptive steroids, including POPs, could impair lactation in theory. However, POPs are generally considered safe during breastfeeding. The contraceptive effect ends immediately upon discontinuation of POPs. Disadvantages of POPs, other than the side effects previously mentioned, include the need for careful adherence to the dosing schedule. Utilizing an alarm or watch that beeps daily at the same time may enhance compliance. Moving on to progestin injection. The DMPA injection Depo-Provera or Depo has been approved as a method of contraception since 1995, although clinical trials with this agent were conducted in the 1960s and 70s, and the medication was used for the treatment of endometriosis and as an off-label contraceptive prior to FDA approval. DMPA is a synthetic progestogen and a member of the pregnane family, but it differs from the estrain and gonane progestins found in oral contraceptives. DMPA is a powerful inhibitor of the hypothalamic pituitary axis at the level of the hypothalamus. DMPA is given as either a 150 milligram intramuscular injection or a 104 milligram subcutaneous injection that can be self-administered. Either injection is given every 13 weeks. IM DMPA must be provided by a trained healthcare professional, which requires that the woman make regular visits for injections. Self-administration of the subcutaneous formulation is feasible and increases this method's convenience for women who find it difficult to get to a clinician's office. The subcutaneous formulation provides a dose that is 30% lower and a reduction in peak blood vessels by 50%. However, it is more expensive because it's provided in a proprietary delivery system. Researchers are investigating the efficacy of lower doses and subcutaneous administration of the current intramuscular DMPA formulation. Lower doses may reduce the metabolic side effects of weight gain and glucose intolerance. Ovulatory suppression with this method often lasts longer than 13 weeks. However, because of the contraceptive effect expires at this point in a minority of women, all women are instructed to return for repeat doses at 13-week intervals. Although prescribing information advises that the first DMPA injection should be given during the first five days of the menses or postpartum, if not breastfeeding, the evidence-based U.S. selected practice recommendations for contraceptive use advises that DMPA can be initiated anytime it is reasonably certain that a woman is not pregnant. This includes immediately postpartum or post-abortion. In other situations, it is reasonable to provide the injection after pregnancy has been ruled out, and if circumstances warrant, advise the woman to take a highly sensitive pregnancy test two or three weeks after the first injection because amenorrhea may be interpreted as a normal effect of the method. If DMPA is given in early pregnancy, it does not appear to stimulate fetal anomalies or miscarriage. It was previously used to prevent miscarriages. Nevertheless, it is important to detect pregnancy as soon as possible to facilitate entry to prenatal care or abortion care. 
Women who are given DMPA outside the previously mentioned ideal parameters for initiation of the method, or off-cycle, should be instructed to use a barrier method for the first seven days while the serum levels are reaching adequate concentrations. The same instructions apply to women who are late for their injections. If a woman has engaged in unprotected intercourse in the previous five days, she should be offered emergency contraception as well. Efficacy and effectiveness. The failure rates for DMPA are listed in Table 13.1. The differences between theoretical efficacy and typical use probably reflect the pattern of women not returning on time for subsequent injections. Safety and side effects. Like other progesterone-only methods, DMPA is safer than combination products overall and can be used by women who are not candidates for estrogen contraceptives. The U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use 2016 provides a complete list of contraindications and precautions regarding DMPA. In 2004, the following warning was added to the DMPA label. Women who use Depo-Provera contraceptive injection may lose significant bone, marrow, bone mineral density. Bone loss is greater with increasing duration of use and may not be completely reversible. It is unknown if use of Depo-Provera contraceptive injection during adolescence or early adulthood, a critical period of bone accretion will reduce peak bone mass and decrease and increase risk for osteoporotic fracture in later life. Depo-Provera contraceptive injection should not be used as a long-term birth control method, i.e. longer than two years unless other birth control methods are considered inadequate. Experts have called for removal of the FDA warning, citing abundant evidence that the effects of DMPA on bone density are considerably less than originally believed. While bone mineral density does not decrease during DMPA use, a review of the literature determined that this decline in bone min mineral density reverses after DMPA discontinuation. This pattern is similar to the bone mineral density changes seen in women who breastfeed. Changes in bone mineral density are an intermediate outcome, but the truly important clinical outcome is fracture risk. In a retrospective study of more than 300,000 women using DMPA, COCs, or a levonorgestrel IUD, fracture risk was not increased in women who had used DMPA in the past, but there was a slight increased fracture, fracture risk in currently using DMPA compared to the other methods. ACOG does not recommend restricting DMPA initiation or duration based on concerns about bone mineral density. Likewise, the use of DMPA is not considered an indication for bone mineral density screening or initiation of medications to prevent osteoporosis, such as estrogen biphosphonates or selective estrogen receptor modula modulators. All women, regardless of contraceptive method, should be counseled about osteoporosis prevention, including adequate intake of calcium and vitamin D via diet and or supplements. Uncertainty continues to exist regarding the impact of DMPA use on the risk of HIV transmission and progression, although evidence is increasing to support an association between DMPA use and HIV acquisition risk. The CDC reports that evidence does not support an association between DMPA use and HIV progression. While the U.S. Selected Practice Recommendations for Contraceptive Use does not restrict the use of DMPA for women at risk of HIV exposure, they advise that women using progestin-only injectable contraception be strongly advised to use HIV preventative measures. 
Although there has been some past concern about the effect of DMPA on the development of diabetes, the U.S. Medical Eligibility Criteria for Contraceptive Use asserts that DMPA has little effect on short or long-term diabetes control for insulin-dependent or non-insulin-dependent diabetes. As with all progestin-only methods, side effects associated with DMPA include changes in bleeding patterns with breakthrough bleeding and spotting occurring in the majority of women in the first six months of use. After 12 months of use, approximately 40 to 50% of women will have become amenorrheic, with this rate increasing to 80% after five years of use. With appropriate counseling, many women see amenorrhea as a benefit of DMPA. Use of DMPA is associated with an increase of approximately two kilograms of body weight at 12 months of use. Given that obesity and its attendant health risks are already at epidemic proportions, counseling about healthy weight management is essential for all women, with close attention being paid to this issue for women using DMPA. Other side effects reported in a small minority of women on DMPA include nervousness, headache, decreased libido, and breast discomfort. Non-contraceptive benefits. Non-contraceptive benefits of DMPA include a reduction in the number of seizures in women with epilepsy and seizure disorders. Unlike most hormonal contraception, the effectiveness of DMPA is not decreased with the concomitant use of most anticonvulsant medications, making it ideal for women with seizure disorders who do not want to become pregnant. DMPA is also associated with a reduction in sickle cell crises in women with sickle cell disease. DMPA is not known to be affected by any medications except aminoglutathiamide, which is used to treat Cushing's disease. As is the case with all hormonal contraceptive options, women have less menorrhagia and less dysmenorrhea with DMPA. Ectopic pregnancy, PID, endometriosis are decreased in DMPA users, outcomes that are protective of future fertility. Advantages and disadvantages. The advantages of DMPA include its high degree of efficacy, long-term nature, and non-interference with coitus. For women who want to keep their contraceptive choice private, there is no visible evidence of DMPA use. DMPA has long been used to achieve amenorrhea in women with mental disabilities who cannot manage their menses. The long-term nature of DMPA may be considered a disadvantage because the contraceptive effect may not cease immediately upon discontinuation. The time to return of ovulation varies widely, ranging from 15 to 49 weeks after the last injection. DMPA requires that intramuscular injections be provided by a trained healthcare professional, so the women must attend regular visits for injections. The subcutaneous formulation might improve continuation among women who find it difficult to get to a clinician's office. However, there remains the possibility of allergic reaction to either the progestin or the vehicle used for injection or vagal reactions to the injection itself. Like all hormonal methods, DMPA does not provide any protection from STIs. Emergency contraception. Sperm can live for up to five days in the female reproductive tract and pregnancy can occur with intercourse five days prior to ovulation. The highest risk of pregnancy is in the 48 hours immediately preceding ovulation. However, due to the uncertainty of ovulation timing, emergency contraception is offered if unprotected intercourse occurs at any time in the menstrual cycle. The USP, LNG, and UPA emergency contraceptive pill 
regimens and the copper IUD may be used within 72 to 120 hours of unprotected intercourse. The USP and LNG methods have a dramatic decline in their effectiveness with time and should be used as soon as possible after unprotected intercourse. These two methods are ideally taken within 72 hours of unprotected intercourse, but they appear to have efficacy up to 120 hours after intercourse. The USP regimen includes combined ECPs that must, be, that must contain at least 100 micrograms of ethanol estradiol and 0.5 milligrams of levonorgestrel repeated in 12 hours. A dedicated combination ECP product is not available in the United States, but numerous COCs can be used as combined ECPs. COCs containing norgestrel are preferable to those with norethindrone because failure rates are slightly higher with norethindrone. Because the higher dose of ethanol estradiol causes unpleasant side effects and other ECP options are available, this regimen has largely fallen out of favor. The most widely available over-the-counter emergency contraception is LNG ECPs, which usually contain a 1.5 milligram single dose, plan B one step or next choice one dose. Occasionally, LNG ECPs are packaged as two 0.75 milligram pills. Both pills can be taken as a single dose. Previously, LNG ECPs were available over-the-counter only for those age 17 and older, and those age 16 and younger needed a prescription, but the age restriction has now been lifted. There are no age or point-of-sale restrictions on buying 1.5 milligrams of LNG ECPs over-the-counter. LNG ECPs are more effective than the USP method and have fewer side effects. UPA, a selective progesterone receptor modulator provided as a single 30 milligram dose, is the most effective oral emergency contraception method. The effectiveness of this medication does not decline within the 120-hour window after unprotected intercourse, as is the case for LNG and combined ECPs. UPA is available only by prescription and can be more difficult to find, so it is recommended to call a pharmacy first to verify if they carry UPA. The copper IUD is the most effective form of emergency contraception. It can be inserted as long as five days after unprotected intercourse. Some contraceptive guidelines recommend its use up to seven days after unprotected intercourse. This method is rarely utilized as emergency contraception in the United States, partially due to the difficulty of coordinating the patient and clinic schedules in the 120-hour window of time. Evidence suggests that some women will choose the copper IUD over ECPs if it's offered as an option, particularly if same-day insertion is available. Efficacy and effectiveness. Factors influencing the risk of pregnancy when UPA or LNG is used for emergency contraception include body mass index, the day of the cycle, and further intercourse during the same menstrual cycle after the use of emergency contraception. Women with a BMI of greater than 30 have a two to 40 fold higher risk of pregnancy after ECP use. LNG may be completely ineffective at reducing pregnancy risk in obese women. The efficacy of LNG and UPA further vary according to the stage of cycle. The copper IUD has the advantage of being highly effective in obese women and providing ongoing contraception. LNG and UPA inhibit ovulation in 96% and 100% of cycles, respectively, when used prior to the onset of the LH surge. However, if given after the onset of the LH surge, 
These medications inhibit ovulation in 14% and 79% of cycles, respectively. LNG is no more effective than placebo when used in the critical five days preceding ovulation. The risk of pregnancy with UPA use is half that seen with LNG. Both LNG and UPA delay ovulation. If women have repeated acts of unprotected intercourse after using ECPs, they are at a fourfold risk of increased risk of pregnancy compared with women who do not have further intercourse within the same cycle. The copper IUD is by far the most effective emergency contraceptive method with a pregnancy rate of approximately one in 1,000 cases in which it is used for this purpose. Safety and side effects. No emergency contraception should be given to or placed in women with a known or suspected pregnancy. There are no other contraindications to the use of emergency contraception. The long history of LNG use indicates little risk if it is inadvertently taken in early pregnancy. There is less experience with UPA, although no reasons for concern were raised in clinical trials. The usual contraindications and precautions for ongoing COC and POP use do not apply to ECPs, but the usual contraindications and precautions to copper IUD use do apply when using this method for emergency contraception. Neither the copper IUD nor oral emergency contraception methods cause abortion. I'm going to say that one more time. Neither the copper IUD nor oral emergency contraception methods cause abortion. Combined ECPs frequently cause nausea and vomiting, which can be reduced by giving an antiemetic such as promethazine prior to treatment. Spotting changes in the next menses, headache, breast tenderness, and mood changes can also occur. These are the same side effects as sometimes noted with LNG ECPs, but are much less frequent and less severe than those seen with combined ECPs. Headache, dysmenorrhea, nausea, and abdominal pain are the most frequently observed side effects with UPA. The copper IUD can cause the side effects discussed in the section on intrauterine contraception. Advantages and disadvantages. Emergency contraception is the only contraceptive method that can be used after intercourse. It cannot be used as an ongoing method of contraception, however, and it provides no STI protection. Access to emergency contraception remains limited because only one method, levonorgestrel ECPs, is available without prescription. Clinicians can increase access to and timely use of emergency contraception by providing advanced prescriptions to all women of reproductive age for UPA and or recommending that patients purchase LNG ECPs in advance. Studies have shown that having ECPs at home increases the likelihood that they will be used when needed and does not promote sexual risk-taking. Providing emergency contraception prescriptions over the phone as needed is another way to increase access. That is the end, and the last section will be non-hormonal methods.